Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Today we have Sheikh Uthman, so let's get into this Q&A. Bismillah. All right, question number one. I am a fantasy fiction writer. As for my research, I found that fiction is halal as long as I bring moral values to the table. My question is, can I write about superheroes as they have supernatural powers, like Superman, for example? Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa barakatuh. I'm going to give a generic answer, but there are, there are some specifics that I'm not going to be able to get into today. Um, generically, writing fictional stories is permissible because it's not, as long as you don't try to attribute it to reality, right? Um, even things that, you know, are, are, may not be of use, like, you know, the Arabian Nights and things like this. But when you get into things where you start to attribute things to a superhero that would be only allowed for Allah and so on, um, then those would not be permissible. So I would say if you do want to go into that field, get a good scholar that you can ask specific questions about, okay, I'm going to write about this in this way. Is it okay? All right, alhamdulillah. Is one committing shirk or kufr when they watch anime or movies that contain elements of shirk and kufr? No, I, I mean, watching something does not make you kafir, but uh, I would not suggest that you watch things that, would, that could corrupt your aqidah. Is it permissible to use products that contain glycerin? Uh, what, what's the issue with glycerin? Oh, well, glycerin is derived from like animals, like pigs and okay. cows. So, so there you would, you would have to first find out what animal is it derived from, right? If it's from um, uh, fish, glycerin, if it's uh, uh, bovine, which is beef and so on, then the rulings are going to differ. If it's okay. pig glycerin and the product is going to be on you during salah, then there's najasa. So... I mean, if you can avoid it, avoid it. If you cannot, then check the source. Alhamdulillah. Speaking of Salah, that's the next question. Does one who miss one single prayer exit the fold of Islam? No. Are all his good deeds null and no, void? No, no. Missing Salah does not make you kafir. Tark of Salah makes you kafir. Missing Salah, like for example, uh, it was time for Asar and you were driving and you were like, I can't pull over because I'm on the freeway, blah, blah, blah. And you should not. It's a sin but you missed it from its time and prayed it in the time of Maghrib, sinful, but not a kafir. If somebody mm -hmm. says, I don't want to pray Salah anymore, whether it's out of laziness or not, mm -hmm. then the issue would be that, that does it reach to the level of tark of Salah, meaning that have they just you know, went through a phase or have they totally abandoned Salah? Under the Sharia, the Khalifa would then give them three days of sitting and saying, hey, you got to start your Salah again. And uh, if they insisted that they don't, then that's more than just being lazy. But anyway, so if somebody completely abandons Salah, Tark of Salah, this is Kufr. But mm. if somebody prays sometimes and misses sometimes and doesn't pray sometimes, I mean, not that I suggest you do that because definitely a major sin, but we don't consider that Kafir. Man Tark of Salah, Faqad Kafir. Rasulullah said, whoever abandons Salah. So nowadays you get extra thick prayer mats for comfort but the forehead isn't properly touching the ground due to the amount of material in between the forehead and the ground does this nullify sajda it sujda? does not because you are still pretty much even though there's a barrier between you and the earth but you're still putting your head on the ground meaning even if you're like on a wood platform um, you're still touching your head down right um, it doesn't mean it has to be on dirt right um, but if I mean, if some people put like a pillow and then your hands are touching and then the pillow keeps you up, that would that would invalidate the song. Okay. Bro, there's a lot of ridiculous comments. That's why I'm skipping uh, some of them. 
I do have one in the meantime on spe- specifically on anime. Would it be haram or makru or something to watch anime because it's like portrayal of, of living beings? So to draw living mm. beings is haram. Um, to watch it, I mean, not necessarily. Um, but again, anime has other issues. I mean, first and foremost, uh, the appropriateness of some of them. I mean, uh, some of them are rape and massacre and stuff based. So obviously that's not permissible for a Muslim to watch. Um, some of them have very shirky concepts that might corrupt, uh, especially little children's aqidah and things. You definitely don't want to do that. Um, but at the same time, you also don't want to go overboard. Like somebody watches uh, Miyazaki's Spirit Away and you're like, you're kafir for watching it. Like, nah, take it easy, bro. Uh, there, there are rules and regulations for takfir and so on. So, Jazakallah khair. Great answer. All right. So it says... Nah, I found one, but I'm not gonna answer. It's, it's like too simple, bro. They can just Google it. <laughs> no, no, go ahead, go ahead. Man. Yeah, it was uh, man, now I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. There you go. Nah, come on, that's that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I have mm-hmm. one, another one. Okay, there. Is this a contradiction in the Quran? One says Allah can have a son. And the other one says he cannot. So chapter 39 verse 4 says, had it been Allah's will to have offspring, he could have chosen whatever he willed of his creation. Oh, this is so easy. And then uh, Surah Anam verse 101, he is the originator of the heavens and earth. How could he have children when he has no mate? Of course. So, I mean, this is very simple, but I'll say it anyway, which is that Allah SWT can do whatever he wants. We do not put restrictions on Allah. Mm-hmm. Allah is able to do anything but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he tells us about some of the restrictions that he has put on himself out of his honor and dignity and one of them is that Allah has chosen not to have spouses or children because it is not befitting the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right this is that question people ask is you know can Allah make a rock that he can't lift like this is it's oxymoron mm-hmm. right it's a it's like saying, can there be a square circle, right? Um, the, the point here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's greatness is there. And from the greatness of Allah is that he is not in need. And a person with children and spouse, and things, these are things that are people in need. So uh, we say Allah can do anything he wants. We stop there. We don't go into, well, what about this? What about that? We just leave it there. That's what Allah told us. But we say Allah has chosen not to. Yeah, can this I add- is a point. Go ahead. This is a point, by the way, though. This is my, I don't know if you can see it. No, you can't see it. Uh, my inbox has 14,026 messages. So your audience is getting this special time to get those answers. MashaAllah. Barakallah. I love that. So when it comes to that, I, specifically, I don't know the Arabic and I don't know if, if you know specifically. Does it mention a son as in a begotten son? Like, like, no. This is this is uh, istifham, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a type in, in we understand in tafsir where Allah is explaining something. Mm. Uh, it's not saying he does or doesn't, mm. but it is saying that if Allah willed it, sure he could, right? Allah can do anything. Mm-hmm. That is something that we cannot uh, say that Allah can't, right? Mm. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has certain, certain rules on himself. One of them is that he has no children, no wife, no father, no beginning, no end. Allah, Allah does not deceive people, Allah does not lie, that is, that is the rules that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set on himself mm-hmm. from his honor. 
Many ayat, and I don't want to go deep into tafsir here, they, their style is called istifham, to explain something to you. Yeah, yeah. So, lam yalad wa lam yulad is also well, from yeah. Allah um, deciding that it's like it's not befitting for him and choosing not to. Of course. To. Look, what we know about Allah is what he revealed about himself. Mm-hmm. Right? If Allah says, that's it. Right? We don't need to get into well, where is this, where is the Arsh uh, and how is Istawa and what do you mean Istawa? And uh, like, come on, like the, the Arsh of Allah is greater than the seven Samawat and all of that put together. How are you going to even try to comprehend this? Yeah, we believe in the Quran as it is revealed uh, uh, with the mind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it with. At the Zahir, we don't go into all these weirdness. So, go ahead. Next no, no. question. Tomorrow. My question for uh, Sheikh Uthman is why does the number seven show up a lot in Islam? We circle seven times around the Kaaba. There's there are <laughs> What grammar, bro? There are seven verses in Surah Fatah. All right, so let, let, me, let, me, let, me just, let me just let me just explain. Look, um, people that go into these numeric things either have too much time on their hands, or and they have some other kind of issue. Because look, if I went to three, I can find plenty of things with three witter and three uh, any uh, this or that. I mean, Maghrib is three and wudu you do it three times. I could find all this stuff, right? If we're going to 40, like you can find a lot of references for 40 and, you know, 40 this and 40 that. If I went to 30, 30 juz and 30 this and, you know, how many number of angels, what's the point? Look, if it was something that you needed to know about for your aqeed and ibadah, Allah will tell it to you. And if not, don't worry about it. Life is simple. Life you got to complicate things. All right. Salam. The question I have for the Sheikh is how do we make up rakat if we forget them during the prayer? For example, Dohar has four. Uh, say I pray two and when I get up and I'm not sure if I'm on my fourth or third, what do I do in this situation? We just had a fiqh dars on this. Uh, I don't know if you even posted yet on Majdari Bad channel. Um, first thing I would say is uh, go to the Majdari Bad channel. There is Akhsar al-Muqsasarat, Zad al-Mustakni. Follow one of the durus all the way through. So you can understand because there's sujood chahu and making up a rukan and all of that, which I can't do here due to time. But in essence, if you're not sure about three or four, you go with aqal, you go with what the lower number is. So then, because that is yaqeen, and yaqeen la yuzulu bishak, and yaqeen is not done away with doubt, usul al-fiqh. So if, you, if your doubt is between three and four, it's three. Then you will add another rak'ah, and you will make sujood chahu at the end of it. Before taslim, after taslim, watch the video, inshallah. All right, we got a question from our personal brother, you know, not biological though, Brother Fletcher. Uh, question to Sheikh Uthman, advice to American Talib ul Ilm that are looking to learn and master Arabic while they are living. And what do you think of Muslims that are interested in doing street dawah during the same format of using and putting sticky notes in a Bible, show the corruption of it without studying or reading it all like you did? Jazakallah khair. Those are really good questions, mashallah. Um, so, First and foremost, uh, may Allah make us all sincere to Allah ilm. I think uh, every Muslim has certain knowledge that is obligatory on them. How to make wudu correctly, how to make salah correctly, how to make hajj correctly, correctly. Not just my dad did it that way, right? And if you don't have that knowledge, stop watching videos, stop doing everything else and seek that knowledge first, right? Don't sit there, waste your time with, uh, refutations and all of that if you don't have that base knowledge right so uh that is fardul ayn on every muslim if you're 
able to get to a sheikh and, and shiuch are rarer, less, less common than, uh, well, I don't know, I mean, finding uh, uh, $10,000 laying around in the street or something nowadays, unfortunately, you know, because people are not developing themselves in knowledge, right? Um, but if you can find a sheikh, man, alhamdulillah, this is the thing on the Quran or Sunnah, on a good aqidah where the Salaf of the Ummah, take that sheikh and study. Um, if you're unable to, try to travel. I mean, the ulema of the past traveled, right? Go, go to Muslim countries, go to where there's ulema, go to where there's knowledge, apply at different universities. If you don't get into universities, don't give up. And he go like I did, and save your money, go rent a place, go sit with the sheikh, sit in his house, sit in his masjid, sit as a feet and learn that knowledge that you need, um, right? If you're unable to, you know, try to find somebody online, try to get a, get a hold of sheikh, you know? Um, if you're unable to do that even, Alhamdulillah, Allah blesses with YouTube and all these videos nowadays. Find series uh, that are online. Uh, we have Arabic language series. We have all those free of charge. Watch those. There are other, mashallah, tulab uh, ilm. And then there are sh actual shuyukh that, that have videos in English online that you can benefit. But don't go to like just like videos, but go to like an actual book, like a series. You know, like, like we have Zad al Mustakni, it's an actual fiqh book. So go through each one, you know, we have Lumat Atiqad and Aqeedah, right? Like try to follow one of those through, inshallah, and gain that knowledge. Um, regarding using the Bible, uh, not everybody has to read the whole Bible to give that one things, uh, but you should know it well enough that uh, any, if they come back at you, you will be able to respond. Like you don't want to go in like half cocked, right? Um, you know, you want to be sure of what you're saying. So if you watch the One Message Foundation channel's videos, um, we go at it with, with preachers and priests and apologists and morons and intelligent people and all of that, right? So you will see those back and forths. So when I do mention the contradiction, the stuff they come back with and how I respond and so on. So if you can get all of that, then I think you're good to go. But if you just pick up a Bible and mark it up and then they hit you with something back and you're like, so, you know, so uh, I would say, you know, get, get at least get the training from the videos, inshallah, before you start doing it. Alhamdulillah. Uh, Akhi Fletcher, hope that's enough for that question. Next question is from a sister. Question, explain the concept of right-hand possession. Is it applicable today if there is a war? And why not just simply get married? Tell you, uh, the right-hand possession has nothing to do with marriage. I mean, if somebody wants to get married, get married. I mean, alhamdulillah, right? Um but the issue here gets to be, what do you do in case scenarios of war, right? So in war, you have a right-hand possessions are only through war. Right? That's the only way it gets there, right? So in war, uh, especially in the time of Rasulullah Sallallahu Wasallam, and before that and after that, what was the solution was genocide, right? People, I mean, I'm talking about non-Muslims, what they would do is they would take over an area and then when they won, they would just go and massacre everybody and kill everybody and, you know, uh, take over the land and the resources, right? And we have many examples of this you can see in history. Um, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose something better. He wanted hidayah for the people. So you can't uh, execute uh, prisoners in Islam unless they've committed war crimes, unless they've done something that they could be any, uh, put to trial for and so on. Um, so otherwise, you can't just generally kill prisoners, right? So now that you have the situation that you have people fighting, not just, you know, you're just walking around, see some dude, you grab him. No, you know, some people are actually fighting you. They're trying to kill you, right? Now you win, 
what do you do? So in Islam, instead of killing them, um, you take them in as captives of war, which is a form of slavery there, right? In Islam, we don't have slavery in the Western sense of slavery. We've never had it, right? What is the Western sense of slavery is uh, Europeans went to Africa, for example, and based on your race, really, it wasn't like they were getting slaves from Northern Virginia or something, right? They, they took Africans as slaves against their will. Some of them were princes, some of them were teachers, some of them were just regular people walking around. They kidnapped them, forced them onto ships. They were not at war, they were not, a, they're not war prisoners. They brought them to America, the, the triangle trade, tobacco and all that, right? You know, And then they took away their identity, they took away their religion, they took away their names, they raped them, massacred them, um, bred them. I mean, all kinds of insane things that I mean, I don't know if it's ever been done in history that, in that way. And, and it was race-based, right? I mean, it was a slave trade, mostly of Black people from Africa, even though there were some others, but this was the main essence of it. Islam has never had that, alhamdulillah, even though this was done with, by people who were Christian, right? What we do have in Islam is if you're taken as a captive of war, you're taken in as a, a captive now. You, you don't have the ability to just walk out, right? But even in that case, we don't force a religion on you. We don't take away your identity. But in this case, we will keep you and, 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 and make sure that you then find a way that you can be freed in a way that benefits the ummah as well. Like if you can teach some people how to read, you can be freed. Um, and you can buy your freedom. You can say, look, you know, I, I'm going to give you this much and I'm going to take my freedom. You can uh, become a Muslim and, and the person could free you like the Mawla of Ibn Umar and uh, the Mawla of Uthman anhum, and become their students and become great scholars and so on. In that situation, when you have a woman, for example, and she's actively fighting and you take them as Ghanima and she's in your household, we know that, that there are, there's liable that things can go. And in Islam, we don't believe in um, any under the rug kind of stuff. Like everything should be evident. If you do want to get a wife, it should be clear. If you want to get a second wife, then that's an issue that you can discuss with your first wife and go for it, but don't go and get a mistress, you know, don't go and uh, visit a prostitute. Like we don't do that hypocrisy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, if you have people that are now captured slaves that are in your household, Allah, this is your right-hand position. But that doesn't have anything to do with marriage. I mean, if you go I mean, get, get married, then you get married. Like you're not going to wait for a war to break out and all this kind of stuff, right? Is it applicable in our time? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you're in a place of war, I guess. But <laughs> I mean, uh, this is not something that we really run into, right? Um, what if the they're having is, like gender identity issues in wars like that? Gender identity issues? Yeah, like war? battles with their own gender fluidity. I'm confused. What? Like that's a, actual that's, battle? That's a, real, that's a real battle people claim to have today. Ah, like they're not sure what their gender is? Mm -hmm. Oh, I got the solution. This is easy. Man, I'm glad you asked this one, right? Go to the bathroom. And just check. Wow. Yeah. Problem Should one seek knowledge first, then pursue a secular degree, or vice versa? So again, that, that's a question that, like, what do you mean by knowledge? If you mean that which is obligatory, then obviously that has to be taken precedence over everything, like how to make salah correctly, how to make wudu correctly. This is part of the This knowledge every Muslim must have, right? So that would be that would be before anything, right? Um, but if you mean like mustalal hadith and usul tafsir and the depth of knowledge, 
then it depends. If you're in a situation where you can seek that knowledge first and then do your secular studies to earn a living, go for it. If you're not, you can get a degree, save some money, and then go study. That's all going to depend on your situation. But the obligatory knowledge should give you precedence over everything. Alhamdulillah. Question for Sheikh Uthman. How does he plan for... Okay, I think, how does he this plan his time... That's what they're trying to say. And and can you provide any hadith from the Prophet's life on organization and daily planning? More specifically, how to build and foster discipline? Oh, that's a beautiful question that I definitely don't have time to answer in depth, but I will give a short answer. How do I plan my life? Not very well, apparently, because I don't sleep enough and uh, so on, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, I have work to do. Like, I'm at work, so, I mean... I, Got to go earn a living. You go out, you earn your living. Um, you go home. You, you have, uh, obviously, obligations that you have to do with the kids. But at the same time, I mean, every week I have a series of durus. So those are set. Um, I have, you know, fun conversations like this, which, you know, we try to plan it out. And uh, one of our brothers, may Allah reward him, Abu Yas, he does my scheduling. If it wasn't for him, I'd double book everything. Um, and, you know, so, you know, you try your best. But anyway. A lot of times it's difficult. I mean, it's not easy because you're trying to do a lot of things and then you have any your own, sometimes your body doesn't keep up. You know, you just kind of crash out, you're tired and so on. But this is, this is life. This life is meant for you to push yourself. You know, this life is meant for you to work hard and, and build your akhirah, right? Regarding Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa of course he had a, a, a pattern that he would follow and in his paying tahajjud and his so and how he gave time to the community and gave time to his family uh, and this is very important for us to study but i can't give it like in these few minutes i would suggest you get a book like shamal al-tirmidhi uh, or shamal al-sharif al-suyuti or any one of these books about the life of rasulullah and, and his daily actions and look at that and inshallah i'll give you uh, more insight uh, and if you are unable then we do have a sirah that is going on on the majlibad channel you can follow those and we'll talk about the life and how it's also needs to divide up the time and so on from authentic ahadith. Alhamdulillah. Uh, this is a rather long one, but I'll paraphrase from Brother Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum. Please, please, please ask him how he managed to continue studying while taking care of his family in the context of traveling abroad to study under scholars. Did he have options besides studying in Pakistan? How did he start learning Quranic Arabic in his early 20s? How did he progress? Okay, that's a lot of questions. How did he progress through Quranic grammar? How did he find the right teachers? So just your whole journey, essentially. How expensive yeah, can uh, that endeavor become? How much time do you guys have? <laughs> uh, there's a video, I think, with, on Sajid's channel, which kind of talks about a lot of these things. So uh, you can watch that, and um, it'll give you more about my life. I think there's been a few that are about my life that are out there. But uh, I'll give a short answer. Um, when you make a goal for something, then you find a way. You know, I mean... Uh, like, like when you really want to do something, you will find it. If you want to make excuses, you'll make, you can make a billion excuses. I could have made excuses. I applied at the Islamic University, didn't get in because I was getting married. And at the time you had to be unmarried and all this stuff. I could have been like, okay, that's it. I'm out. You know, I didn't get in. I'm done. But, but I was like, no, I mean, this is something I need. I need knowledge. I love it. I want to do it. So I made a, a niyyah. I asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it easy for me. Alhamdulillah. May Allah reward my wife. I mean, she, she traveled with me and I, I saved, instead of buying, you know, fancy cars or things when I was an engineer, I saved that money and, um, you know, I, I took it with me and traveled and a lot with my mother for any being patient or any, um, you know, so it, it wasn't easy, but, you know, I made a goal. This is what I want to do. 
Um, shiuch, I mean, it's not easy to find a sheikh. I mean, I think it's very, very, very difficult. But if you try, ask Allah, Allah will make a way for you, you know. SubhanAllah, I mean, I got a hold of a sheikh and he was here in the U.S. And, um, and he wrote me a tazkiyah and then I went to Amarat and alhamdulillah, I ran to another sheikh. And he wrote me a tazkiyah, I went to another sheikh and uh, I tried to find ways and I went to Jordan. I went to other places to study. Um, one of my shiuch recommended for me to go to Pakistan and study Arabic. You know, it's kind of a weird thing, but uh, some of the shiuch are really, really good in, in Arabic grammar and uh, balagha, like eloquence and so on. So uh, I wanted to go there, but when I was in Emirat, uh, I was studying with the sheikh in his house, great opportunity, didn't take any money from me, wonderful person, uh, even though I continuously offered. Um, but I didn't get to practice a lot because you know in Emirat you could get away with English, Urdu, and Pashto, and I spoke all the other languages. So I went to Jordan for one that reason to just be where I had to speak Arabic. And I made a rule for myself not to speak Amiya. I took a qasam. I'm not going to speak accented Arabic because I wanted to learn Arabic for the Quran, not to order gahwa at a, a coffee shop, right? So I would be in the street speaking fusha with like everybody, you know, like, you know, urid wan idhab ilal min fadlak. And like, it would, people would make fun of it. People would be like, what are you, a professor? It's not a class, but I didn't care because for me, I had a goal. So I kept to that role and that helped me practice because in Jordan, I was taking buses, I was going places. I had to go shopping. I mean, I couldn't speak any other language. So I had to do it in Arabic and I had to do it in Fusha. And the store owners would laugh at me like I'm shopping for, you know, apples and Fusha and stuff. But who cares, right? And uh, alhamdulillah, that helped me a lot getting my practice going. When I went to Pakistan, the mahad that I was at had a rule, only Arabic, no, no Urdu, no Pashto, nothing else inside. So we had to speak it. And that was all Fusha. And I studied Al-Fiyah bin Malik. And if you know what that is, that is like an amazing, amazing book in and Sarf and so on. So uh, the Sheikh used to memorize, make us memorize Biyut from, you know, from the Abiyat and then um, come back and read them and then explain them. And it was difficult and I got laughed at, but Alhamdulillah did it, you know, continued the Durus with him. Um, then Sheikh Abu Muhammad Shawri, mashallah, from him with Hadith and uh, a lot of benefit that I got there from them, a depth that I didn't find even in other countries. So Alhamdulillah. But, and that was, an avenue that was easy for me because I was originally from Pakistan. So, I, mean, I had family there and I could do that. But you can do that in other countries. Ulema are everywhere. Alhamdulillah. I mean, not so much in the West, but in other countries. I mean, if you have the ability to go to a certain country uh, and you ask Allah and find shiuch upon the Quran or Sunnah and the way of the Salaf of the Ummah, you will find them, inshallah. All right. Guys, make some dua for our Sheikh Uthman ibn Farooq and his family that Allah gives them barakah, blesses them, guides Amen. them, and protects them. I mean, uh, next question is from a sister. Uh, give the wisdom behind why birthdays are haram. And, Thank you know, maybe from there to Christmas and all that. Excellent. Ayyad celebrations are a part of the religious rulings, right? Meaning those that, those that occur yearly or, or a certain pattern, right? One is that you just want to throw a party and nothing wrong with that. Like this is mubah. Like let's say, uh, I come to your city and you're like, hey, let's get some steaks, throw them on the barbecue, let's do it. Like you guys come to San Diego, we're like, hey, let's get some burgers, invite some brothers, cool. No problem with that. But when you make a reoccurring festival, then there are some rules and regulations, right? Um, Rasul salam, he went to Medina and they had their own celebrations. Not necessarily even religious celebrations, but they had their own celebration. The Prophet said, Allah has replaced these for you with that which is better. 
Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha, right? So he told us that you can't celebrate those anymore. Now Allah has given you these days to celebrate, right? Which tells you it's not just an individual, like, okay, we just want to make up something like that, right? So that's the first thing to understand. Secondly, when we talk about celebrations, we have to look at origin. Like, where did this come from? And as much as uh, some people with doctorates from certain universities may want to avoid this question nowadays by blinding themselves, even that they know better. But the reality is birthdays have a beginning in shirk. That's where it came from. I have a book called The Unusual uh, Beginnings of Usual or, common, or Uncommon Beginnings of Common Things. Um, it's National Geographic's book. And you know, if I was home, I'd show it to you guys. But it talks about where things came from. And non-Muslims, it's not like some you know, bias here. And they talk about birthdays started out as a, a Greek shirk uh, festival to honor the moon goddess. And mm. that's where the idea of the cake came from. And this is not Muslims have documented this, right? The round cake, like we don't think about this, right? Uh, it, it was supposed to be like the moon goddess. And that's why they would light candles to illuminate the moon looking cake to worship the moon goddess. And they would blow out the candles making a wish unfamiliar, right? As a prayer to the moon goddess to grant their wish. That may not be done as a religious festival today, but those aspects are all there. Right? Those origins are there, right? We still have birthdays, we still have wishes, we still have candles, we still have blowing out. This is a pagan religious festival. So the hikmah in it is we should not participate in things that were pagan ritual festivals, right? Let's take that to Christmas. Where did Christmas come from? Is it in the Bible? No. Any historian, credible historian that said Jesus was born on the 25th of December? No. Biblical scholars give, due to looking at the trees and farms and people coming, they give the date of around summer and spring and so on for the birth of Jesus according to them. So where did the 25th of December come from? Um, it's a pagan festival that was integrated into Christianity. Uh, and you can, I mean, there's documentation all over the world for this, right? To please pagans and get them into being Christian without having to give up their pagan festivals. Easter is the same. Um, you know, the same is true for Halloween. This was a pagan devil worshiping, I mean, type of a festival that now... Christians celebrate. My Christian neighbors celebrate. And you're like, hey, this is kind of devilish, don't you think? Yeah. You know. So those imams and doctors that are like, oh, well, today we don't take it to be a religious festival. Well, I mean, if you think about it, neither is Christmas. I mean, most Americans or Canadians and stuff don't really think about Jesus at Christmas either. It was gifts, Santa Claus, reindeer, eggnog. I can't the hell that on. Christmas tree, like none of them has to do with Jesus, right? If I, when I was in school, if I asked any, any kid in my middle school, hey, what's Christmas about? I guarantee you that zero of them would say Jesus, right? Gifts, you know, it's the highest suicide rate in <laughs> Christmas time because the people that don't get their gifts or aren't able to buy gifts go kill themselves because like, that's how materialistic it has become, right? Um, Santa Claus, you know, I remember Santa Claus. Where did Santa Claus? This was a Nordic green where you know he, he he became red 
because of some artists and then Coca-Cola really kind of promoted the red color for marketing after that, right? Before that, he used to be wearing green and he used to have an eye patch in the Nordic uh, tradition. This is a Nordic warrior type of a thing. And now you got, oh, ho, ho, sit on my lap. Like, whoa, sit on some dude's lap. Nah, bro, I've been around Catholics. I'm not messing with that kind of stuff, right? So you got, you got Christmas trees. Where did Christmas trees come from? I mean, the Bible tells you don't put gold and silver on trees and this kind of thing. And you got this decorations going up, right? All this is pagan stuff, right? We got to draw a line. Look, we're Muslim. You want to celebrate Eid. Alhamdulillah, we got Fitr, we got Adha. You really want to just throw a family thing out or whatever. Every Jum'ah is the Eid of the week. You got all these things. Why you got to make bid'ah? All these people, Mawlid and this and that. And then when Eid comes, they're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> so this is the thing. Um, Inshallah, kind of longer than I expected to give that. Inshallah. And by the way, uh, anytime you feel like you got to go, let us know. We'll cut it off and we'll do a part two for this because definitely can be in one video. All right. Bismillah. Uh, another question. Please help share your views in regards, in, in regards to the following hadith. Famous historian Ibn Jarir Tabari said Aisha radiallahu anha was born before Islam. Compiler of famous hadith collection whatever name said Asma was sister of Aisha radiallahu anh, was 10 years older than Aisha in 73 Asma died at age of 100 Ibn Kathir in his book Al-Bidaya well, right, let, me, let, me just, let me just stop you because I've discussed all of these in a video right so I have a video on the age of Aisha anha. if you watch it discuss it regarding many of these uh, narrations uh, like about the age of Aisha anha, these are historic reports these are not Sanadan um, so we can't really check the chains um, some of these are opinions of scholars and so on. Um, but let me just cut to the chase of what this question is really about, right? And if you watch my video, I, I, I explain it in detail. Um, the age of Aisha, we have a report that is Sahih that mentions six. We have at the engagement, not the marriage. And another Sahih report that mentions seven, right? So these are both Sahih narrations. So obviously there, this, this is not something that is yani, uh, like muttafaqun alayhi uh, without any khilaf, right? Because even Aisha gave different ages. Um, if we look at this issue, do we have an ayah from Quran about the age of Aisha? No. Do we have a hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu about the age of Aisha? No. We do have sahih ahadith from Aisha in Bukhari, and I do not deny those ahadith. I accept them, no doubt that she gives her age, but in Sahih Muslim, she also gives a different age, which shows that there was not a surety in her own mind, right? On top of that, as Nabi and others thought, maybe it was in the middle of the two and so on, the ulama have explained that there is, there is some uh, leeway for age here. Because if you look at the fact that you had a period of time that you had no calendar, like today, if I ask uh, Rami, how old are you? He's gonna be like, well, I was born in, XYZ year, so I'm this years of age, or he'll take his birth certificate or his passport, right? We got none of that. You have no calendar. I mean, you don't have the Hijri calendar. That came in the time of Umar, right? So you have no numbering. You only have like Amil Field, you know, the year of the elephant, the year of rain, the year of drought. Like that's how you have, but you have no numbering, right? So the age of Aisha, Anha, Wallahu alam. I mean, to be very honest with you, like Allah knows best. Maybe she was six or seven at engagement and 10 or 11 or so on at the time of marriage. Maybe uh, if we look at the other ahadith and, uh, that, that mentioned some of the historic events that she narrated that she could not have at that young age, maybe she was older. 
that's not really a big issue because what we do know is she was at an age that she was already engaged. Right? So that was the normal age to be married at that time. We do know that no mushrik, none of the enemies of Hasanam, lifted an objection to this. Mm-hmm. They didn't see it as something different from the normal cultural practices of that time. How old should you be to get married? I mean, somebody says 18, well, where did you get that number from, right? Nowadays, you say, well, you got to go to middle school, then you got to go to high school, then you got to graduate, then you got to do this, right? Well, you didn't have any of that. I mean, at that time, even men would get very married very young because they didn't have four-year degrees before they can talk about getting married, right? You were a 14, 15-year-old man. You were out there. You were working. You were hunting or farming. You got married, right? You were a girl. You were past the age of, of childbearing. You were having your haid or you know, whatever. Your body was physically ready. You got married. That's how the society was. It is not right for somebody to sit back and judge a society so long ago. Um, regarding those narrations, again, I mean, I don't, I mean, I've spent time on it and so on. You can look at my video for more mm-hmm. details on it. But in the end, what does it even really matter? I mean, whatever it was, it was appropriate. Alhamdulillah. I just want to give a quick plug. Uh, again, this is just my personal opinions. This is not to, you know, contradict any any scholars or anything. There's a YouTuber by the name of Full Metal Theist. He goes into a lot of different um, philosophical arguments and refutations. So he made a video called Ending the, the Pedophile Argument. If you guys can watch that, uh, just search that up. Full Metal Theist. Very good explanation. All right, next. The next uh, question. question for sh- um, guys, yeah. sorry. Assalamu alaikum. I'm going to have to excuse myself. I have to go pray. But well, yeah, May Allah bless you all. And until next time. Assalamu alaikum. I mean, question for Sheikh. What are your thoughts on how much the mahr should be? The way I see it, it is a cost of marriage and intimacy. If it is too high, it makes haram attractive. But if it is too low, women aren't being given their right. I think you're, the way you saw it was perfect, right? Mahar um, has to do with urf and adat, right? It has to do with cultural norms. And the sharia looks at cultural norms. Um, when we look at, for example, uh, in our time, let's say in... Uh, a, a, a region of Bangladesh and the norms there. Um, and then you look at, let's say, Switzerland and the norms there, you're going to find two different cultural norms. If we in Sharia were to say Meher has to be X amount of money, then it would not be fair. Either it would be too low in, or it would be too high. And that's why the wisdom of Sharia is there is no minimum or maximum for Meher. Rather, it should show that a person is serious about marriage. Like when you come to marry somebody and you're like, yo, I got a dollar, right? You really don't want to marry that guy, right? You, you want to be make sure that he's, he's taking, because, you know, he's not going to take the marriage seriously, right? $2, yeah, you know, like I said, uh, I mean, I do nikah for people all the time and then they have like 50 cents, you know, or a dollar. I'm like, okay, well, if you want to do that. But, but this is the right of the woman to choose, right? Now, on the other hand, um, if you make the mehr a million dollars, like, what does she come with, like, you know, a house with her or something? Like, you know, like, come on, like, you know, that's, that's ridiculous, right? So I think people need to kind of understand, like, look, you need to make it where the person takes the marriage seriously. You do not want to under uh, any appreciate this great opportunity of marrying this wonderful person. And at the same time, don't make it a barrier to getting married. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and just a very important point on that, it is the woman's right, not the family's right. Like, this is not something your family should set. The girl who's getting married, that's her huck, and it should be given to her. 
not her dad trying to get rich off of having daughters, right? You're not selling daughters here. You, you, you have to keep that in perspective, right? So making a mehr that is culturally appropriate for the time and place that you're at to show seriousness and respect to the woman and at the same time, not making it a barrier to getting married. Alhamdulillah. I think this question is going to be really good for you. So, assalamu alaikum. I feel like in the West, we've been programmed to blindly accept whatever gets thrown at us, be it from the government or from people like teachers. So it makes it difficult to be firm at times. It's also difficult to find the balance and not be aggressive or mocking when challenging those ideas and being firm with our deen. Question, how does one be firm when it comes to matters of the deen, but not come across as holier than thou and rude at the same time? That's a good question. Um, basically, look, we as Muslims have to stand up for the truth with the best akhlaq and the best mannerisms. Like the Rasul والسلام, never sacrificed the truth. He never compromised what's right, but he was never rude or aggressive or demeaning about it. Sometimes he was stern and sometimes we have to be stern. And sometimes he was very tolerant. And sometimes we have to, you have to be able to recognize the situation, right? So if you are in school and, and in a, there's a conversation about LGBTQ, XYZ, whatever, you know, you, you're a Muslim, you have the right to your opinion, uh, showing respect to the setting that you're at, not being vulgar, not being uh, combative, you know, give your opinion. If you feel that you're unable to, then I mean, don't say anything, just hate it with your heart, right? But, but yani, you should be able to, right? And if I say as a Muslim, I don't agree with riba-based housing, nobody should be offended by that. And if they are, that's really their problem, right? Um, at the same time, I mean, if I walk up to somebody and I'm like, you're going to hell for buying a house in riba, like, that's wrong because that's not the way of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa right? So, any, we give da'wah and sometimes you have to be like, look, you know, go walk your little dog, right? You got to like uh, be stern about it. And sometimes you know, we let them speak and speak and speak and speak and they're going off and we're laughing, giving them cookies and whatever, right? So you have to kind of mm. gauge the situation and understand it. Some of them will come with experience and time. But the best thing I can say is, you know, look at the life of Rasulullah, see how he dealt with different situations. And if you want to see a more contemporary, watch the videos that we have on da'wah when we deal at different universities answering questions from kuffar and see how we deal with it. Inshallah, you can get a good uh, gauge from that, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. All right. Next question. I'm a new homeschooling parent and would like some advice on that. Oh, no, there's, there's more. And would like to know what also what Islamic books or classic texts to teach my kids from an elementary level i've seen other homeschoolers use questionable sufi texts and would like my children to be on the correct qida and manhaj i would like to make a blog about this at some point inshallah first thing i think it's a very good idea to homeschool your kids uh, i homeschooled all my four kids uh one of them alhamdulillah just graduated with a 4.0 topped his class number one test scores in his in his, in his state testing even though he was homeschooled so homeschooling doesn't mean that you sacrifice the level of education um secondly it's not going to be easy <laughs> so uh you know try to get with some homeschooling groups some tutoring groups try to find some volunteer tutors maybe some paid tutors uh because you yourself might not be able to teach them especially at later grades earlier grades is easy right um 
Regarding Islamic education, I don't know about, I mean, do you speak Arabic? Do your children speak Arabic? Like, I don't know what your level is. So what I'm going to suggest, if you go to Majdribat channel, go to the playlists. There's a playlist for books and research. I think it's called Books and Research. And in it, I have one series. There are five videos about the books that every Muslim household must have. Um, and then I have series about developing and fiqh and different mutun and different uh, sciences. So you can watch through those and maybe blog about them if you like and uh, use that as a good guideline to how to develop your children in knowledge and so on. Um, anybody, in every science, there, there are beginning mutun. If you get the book, it's called The Etiquette of Seeking Knowledge of Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid. He talks about some books there. If you look at the Kitab al-Ilm of Sheikh Ibn Taymin or the explanation of Hilya Talibin by Sheikh Ibn Taymin, uh, which is the explanation of the etiquette of seeking knowledge. Etiquette knowledge is available in English. Uh, the explanation, I don't believe it is. I think so in Arabic, but they talk about different books to kind of grow. Like in fiqh, for example, you can begin with like Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat or Zad al-Mustakniya or Dalil al-Talib or some beginning text and then go up to like al-Mukniya and so on. Um, inshallah, if you watch our videos, the fiqh durus, we talk about how to develop students in that, inshallah. I got one, one more. One more. Let's do two more. Because I have one from uh, YouTube and one personal one. Awesome. Two uh, more and we're done. Pers- perfect. My question first is, are skin fades haram? Tell you, um, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa forbid qaza, which is a type of haircut, which is shaved and left, right? So you shave a part of the head and you leave a part of the head. Some of the ulema took it to be makroot, karaha, but either, I mean, makroot and haram doesn't, mean that it's okay like it, it makru doesn't mean okay like some uh, some of our brothers now they're like somebody says makru well that doesn't mean it's okay that like, you still shouldn't do it right so what is that when you shave a part of the head and leave like you see the marine haircut we call it like somebody shaves that part of the head and then they leave it um this is there is uh, there's mana on it in hadith whether you take it to be haram or makru either which way rasulullah forbid it that doesn't mean your hair has to be all the same size. Like this is where people take a little confusion there. And I know the Islam QA is like, you know, the, when people read it, they, they kind of take it that way. But, but let me explain that. So Rasulullah used to cut his hair at three lengths, like, you know, which is, you know, mid ear, later, lower, and shoulder level, right? So if, for example, uh, Anhel cuts his hair here, the hair that is from the bottom of the hair and the hair that is from the top is not going to be the same length, right? So, so that doesn't mean all your hair has to be exactly the same length, but you should not shave a part of the head and leave a part of the head or seem like it. Even tashbih of, of things that are haram is, is haram or tashbih of being makruh is makruh. So if you cut your hair, let's say a three here and a five up on top, nothing wrong with that, right? Um, but if you cut it at a one here and a seven up top, then it looks like the shaved side. So then you get into a, a gray area, right? Where you should not. So if you're talking about shaving and then leaving, then you should not. If it's like, like a really close trim and really long, then you're still imitating that way. So you shouldn't. But if your hair is shorter on the sides than on top, in and of itself, that's not a problem. Alhamdulillah. All right. Question from a sister. A question for the sheikh. Is it obligatory for me to work if my parents want me to? To be honest, I want to just seek Islamic knowledge and be a good housewife and mother. And I know that would upset my mother quite a bit. What should I do? This is something I hear quite a lot. So, Really? Yeah. Well, 
a lot of our brothers would be interested in knowing where sisters like that are at. I know, man. Like where uh, they are. Yeah, right. So um, if you obeying your parents is obligatory, but not in disobedience of Allah. So if your parents are putting you in a workplace where there are men, there's ikhtilat, there is um, obviously uh, a danger to you because, you know, the Me Too movement has shown us that, you know, uh, the workplace can be very dangerous for women and so on. Then in that case, if there is no necessity, like you don't have to earn money to eat kind of a thing, then you shouldn't. Then you should tell your parents, look, Allah has made it haram for me to be interacting with men uh, without necessity. And I want to keep my life within halal. And we hope that a good Muslim parent will, will listen to that. And if they don't, then you don't have to obey them in the disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, um, if your parents want you to work in a place which is totally halal and it's all women and there's no danger and you have a necessity or something, then yes, you should obey your parents. Um, but even then, I mean, uh, if you tell your parents, look, I want to get married, I want to I mean, live a good Islamic life, being the corner store of, of society, a good mother, a good wife, uh, any, then nothing wrong with that. That's the way you should do it. And if they force you not to, you don't have to obey them uh, because you don't obey the makhluk in the disobedience to the khaliq. Uh, but yeah, I, I would really suggest, you know, to try to find a good brother and who's also, I mean, don't rush into it, who's also any upon the Quran and sunnah and things. And get married and, and live a good, healthy life. Mm -hmm. One quick thing I wanted to know. I know you said one more, but I went through all the 414 comments. Aside from the, you know, clutter and hate comments and random spam and all that. Oh, there's actually just those. one more real question. That's it. All right. Go ahead. So, Do it. Perfect. From a sister. Bismillah. Question for Sheikh Uthman. Is it acceptable to memorize the Quran by merely listening if you can't read Arabic that well? Asking this because Prophet Muhammad couldn't read or write. But does that also apply to everyone as well? Or is it just better to learn Arabic and Tajweed the proper way? Honestly, I'm sort of asking this because since I was a kid, the way I would memorize is I would watch English word-for-word -word videos when the surah in Arabic in the background, with the surah in Arabic in the background. I would do this since my parents couldn't teach me. Now that I'm older, it's a bit hard to learn how to read the Quran when I already know how the words will sound, if that makes any sense. Like, what is the proper way to reset my brain on this? Because it's really making this process so much more difficult. Look, if you can memorize by listening, memorize by listening. Like different people memorize different ways. Some people memorize by memorize by kind of taking a photographic picture of the page, and that's why they keep the same mushaf for memorization. Some people memorize better by listening. I personally memorize better uh, Quran better by listening and reading at the same time. Like if I'm reading and listening, it helps me personally. But that's a personal preference. There is no shari'i hukum that you have to read or you can't read or you must listen or don't. Right, so that's the only the only the thing I will advise is it's very important for you to recite the Quran to a teacher. You will not catch your own mistakes. Even Rasulullah he used to revise the Quran with Jibreel and, and him Allah taught it to him, right? The Sahaba used to recite upon their teachers, uh, from amongst the Sahaba and to Rasulullah and the Tabi'un to them. So whether you memorize by reading or listening, it's not really the point. But you should try to find a teacher um, who you can recite the Quran to, who would listen to it to catch your mistakes. Uh, and that is essential. Past that, reading, listening is up to you. Alhamdulillah. All right. Guys, with that being said, if you made it this far, comment down below. Hashtag Sheikh Uthman goes live if the next time we do talk to the brother, you want us to do a live stream. And Anhel, do you have any question for the Sheikh before we end it off?
Is the whole David thing real? <laughs> no, nah, we pay him. We pay him to come out. Ah, bro, I knew it, man. There's no way this man There's keeps no coming way, out there just to keep getting old. Um, you know, the thing with these guys is uh, originally they came out and they made this big fuss that they were going to destroy our Dawa. And I, I didn't even know who they existed. Like, I'd heard their names here and there, but whatever, right? Um, and they came out and alhamdulillah, as you guys have all seen the video, they got, I mean, subhanAllah, even non-Muslims come and tell us like these guys got annihilated, right? They got destroyed. They, they couldn't even explain their base core belief, right? And, and they, you know, so, so they acted differently. One of them, uh, Hashimu decided to just have a meltdown on in his bathroom on TV and on videos or whatever and living rooms and just you know whatever that's his thing right the crook got lost somewhere I don't know I haven't heard about him but hammer time I mean his his followers were like you got to go back and do something right so this guy came a second time videos online he got destroyed again so he came a third time and same thing and every time he comes out we get more shahada. Every time he comes out, we get more viewers. Every time we, he comes out, we get more subscribers. Every time he comes out, we get more people at that event that come and become Muslim. And, and, and alhamdulillah, we have videos. Uh, since they came out, look at the videos of the number of shahadas. We don't record all our shahadas, but we have so many videos of people taking shahada. Alhamdulillah, we have uh, that Mexican brother that came out recently and said, you know, he watched the videos and alhamdulillah, he became Muslim because of it. We had a a pastor come out with his son and say, look, I watched the videos and I left being a pastor because of it. Now I want to learn about Islam. And a Christian was telling us, you destroyed them, right? So he came out a fourth time, right? And, and we were like, cool, right? And subhanAllah, we caught him lying repeatedly. And the only way they can make their stuff is when they go back and they sit alone without me there and clip and doing this and all that stuff. That's the only way. When they come face to face, the reality comes out. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made this plan and that they come and, and, and increase the da'wah and we hope they keep coming and keep increasing the da'wah and inshallah we're starting up new locations and new cities, the da'wah is growing, alhamdulillah, we have more shahadas than ever, we have more subscribers and viewers than ever, so uh, you know, uh, even if, it, you know, I, I almost wish we did pay him, I kind of feel bad, dude flies out, I think, to New York, rents hotels, pays listen, all those listen, man, he, he's getting enough money from all the people that want to you watch know, him so he's got all that money and he's still begging on their channel for more money bro imagine signing like your afterlife for a quick buck here yeah. yeah but how crazy would it be if this man actually takes his shot at you know a lot of people have this uh i i asked him in one of the debates i told him what's your intention to come out right because when i asked him about the bible he's like i'm not an expert in the bible oh you're not like you're not an expert in the quran for mm. sure and you don't know the Bible, because I'm a philosopher. What philosophy? I couldn't answer it, right? So I asked him, like, why do you come out? Like, what's the point? Like, like in the end, basically, he's just out there. He's like a boxer. Like, you go, you go in a ring, you get beat up, and then you're like, well, I still need a check, so I'm going to go back in that ring, not get beat up again, but I still need that check, right? It's like Conor McGregor kind of attitude, right? And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be the Habibs for him any time of the week, inshallah, no problem. But that's the problem. His intention is not to seek the truth. Right? And if it was, he'd be Muslim by now. But when your intent is just to make content and just to get money, then that's not that's not the intention that Hidayah comes with. But Allah can guide who he will. We hope Allah guides him. And, uh, you know, it's not going to hold, you know, it's not going to benefit us. Our da'wah continues. You know, if somebody becomes Muslim, it's good for them. I mean, our da'wah, alhamdulillah, by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is going really well. 
I mean, we, we got Shahadas, we got more videos of Shahadas that haven't been posted yet. Um, you know, we got, we got, you look at the comments, it's brothers like comment, like 10 of my friends became Muslim from watching the David Wood debate. You know, I became Muslim. So many people, I became Muslim, I became Muslim. Alhamdulillah. So let them come. Allahu Akbar. All right. All right, brothers. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. With question answers, inshallah. Inshallah. Barakallah feek for making the time. May Allah bless you. Ameen. All right, bro. Cut it off. I am out. I got one last thing for you, bro. Who is gay? You are gay. Am I, though? Mm-hmm. How you know? Well, how about this? If we get 50 people commenting down below on how is gay, G-A-E, then you're gay, bro. I don't think a voice like that. I'm accounted, though. Nah. All right, bro. With that being said, may Allah bless you all. Thank you for your time. Tune in next time with Sheikh Uthman Ibn Farooq from OMF, the lion himself. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>